Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on the America Out Loud Network. I am your host, Randy Sutton, a 34-year law enforcement veteran, uh, the author of a number of books, including A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released, Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. I'm also the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers, a nationwide charity. So on this show, we talk about all things involving the, the mental, physical, spiritual health of America's law enforcement community. And I, as always, I always have a great guest, and today I will not disappoint you with uh, who is my guest today. But before we bring her in, let's talk about our reality check. Uh, this, uh, since our last show, two law enforcement officers have given their lives in the line of duty. The first is police officer Daniel P. Didato of the East Fishkill Police Department in New York. Police officer Dan Dottato was killed in a vehicle crash near, near mile marker 36 on southbound to Connick State Parkway at about 6 p.m. He was en route to the Westchester Medical Center to interview a pedestrian who had been struck by a vehicle near the East Fishkill Police Station. Officer Dottato's patrol car left the roadway and struck a tree as he drove along the parkway. He was transported to the hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. Officer Didato had served with the East Fishkill Police Department for 18 years, previously served with the New York City Department of Environmental Protection. Police Officer Daniel P. Didato, East Fishkill Police, New York, end of watch Monday, December 18, 2023. The second is Deputy Sheriff Joshua Hamilton of the Preble County Sheriff's Office in Ohio. Deputy Sheriff Joshua Hamill died in a vehicle crash on Ohio State Route 503 at approximately 4 a.m. Deputy Hamilton traveling southbound and a vehicle traveling northbound collided head-on. He was transported to the Kettering Preble ER campus where he was pronounced dead. The driver of the vehicle, other vehicle, was also killed. Deputy Hamilton was a United States Navy Reserve and Army National Guard veteran, had served with the Preble County Sheriff's Office for just over a year and a half. He is survived by his daughter and parents. Deputy Sheriff Joshua Hamilton, Preble County Sheriff's Office, Ohio, end of watch Monday, December 18, 2023. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty. Um, now, I, those are the two officers who gave their lives in the line of duty. Um, this year, as this year comes to a close, this has seen the unfortunate rise in police shootings. Almost every single day, a police officer has been shot in America. Um, this is a startling, startling fact. And um, when you add the, the thousands being assaulted every month, physically assaulted, it shows you the, how dangerous the job is. Now, the, da the job dangers are not simply physical. The job dangers, of course, are emotional, psychological, spiritual. And so... Um, each of these men and women that puts on that uniform every single day truly is a hero. Now, support them. Support them because they, they need it. And uh, that's what this show is all about. So let me bring my guest in. Lori White is my guest. She is the author of 1033, An Officer Down Steps Back Up. Um, I'm going to read you her, her bio and... Uh, 
it's really uh, it's really interesting. Um, and and, and I, I I have met Lori before. She is a great speaker out there on the speaker circuit. Um, Lori White served in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police from 1996 to 2020 when she retired as a sergeant. She survived a gunshot while attempting to execute a search warrant at the residence of an alleged sex offender in Kitimat, British Columbia. Her injuries were so severe that her right leg had to be amputated below the knee. Lori successfully returned to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Post after only 10 months of rehabilitation, likely becoming the first police officer in Canadian history to have returned to full unrestricted policing duties with an artificial leg. As a woman and an amputation, with an amputation, as a survivor with a permanent disability, and as someone who lives with post-traumatic stress, White is a sought-after inspirational speaker within the policing world and beyond. She has received several awards, including the prestigious Governor General's Meritorious Service Medal and the Medal of Valor from the International Association of Women Police. White is a graduate of Brock University and the University of Ottawa, as well as the RCMPD Training Academy, and she lives in British Columbia. Welcome to the show, Lori White. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Good morning, Randy. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for uh, joining me from the frosty chill of Canada. Well, you know what? That might be a bit misleading because I'm actually going golfing today. There's no snow here where I'm at. So. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> well, great. So, Lori, if you would, you had a you had a long career with the RCMP with the RCMP. Um, if you would, where did you grow up and what was it the, in your childhood or what did you, when did you make a decision to become a cop? What, 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 uh, inspired you to do that? I actually didn't think about becoming a police officer until I had graduated with my master's degree. I wasn't able to find a job. I had originally gone to university thinking I wanted to be a phys ed teacher. And then when I was in third year, I switched directions and I did my master's instead and I promptly found myself living back at home with my parents. Not really what I expected at 23 with two degrees, but I was a substitute teacher and I was a bartender. I was a fitness instructor. I was a figure skating coach and I just couldn't find anything that was um, career like anything that was going to be a, a solid career, all those things I loved doing, but uh, I was going in all these different directions with no real sense of permanence. And that's when I met a police officer, an RCMP officer. So in Canada, we have the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is the federal uh, police force in the country. And then we have provincial police in all the various provinces. And then we also have the RCMP does municipal policing sometimes as well. So the RCMP does um, all three levels, but not in every province. So it's a little complicated here and it's different province by province. But I wanted to say that just to give it a little bit of context because where I grew up, I saw the RCMP very little because I'm from a smaller community but also I saw mostly federal work. I didn't see any of the uh, other roles when I was growing up. So when I met this police officer at the gym that I was working at back then when I was about 24, I knew the federal side of it, but I really didn't know all the different roles and responsibilities that were possibilities within the organization. 
but he was the one who inspired me. He said, you know, you're fit, you're outgoing. Like, have you ever considered policing? And he was really the one that inspired me to go and apply. So I'm not like many police officers where this was a lifelong dream for me, that this is something I wanted since childhood. I didn't come from a family of police officers like many of my friends. So my path was definitely a different one. Interesting, interesting. So it was a, a, a chance conversation with a, with a RCMP, uh, RCMP guy in a gym that suddenly hit, lit, lit the light bulb for you. It really did. And I um, I applied, I think I started my application process in a January and I was at Depo, which is our policing academy for the RCMP. And we spent six and a half months in Saskatchewan. So speaking of bitter cold, that's where it's bitter cold in the winter. And so I spent six and a half months there, all RCMP officers do. So that's my path to becoming uh, um, an RCMP officer. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, in the United States, you know, the the, the there are varying varying lengths of, uh, of of basic training, if you will. Six months that's a that's a long time. Now, is that a residential academy? Do you live there? Yes, it is. It's like paramilitary style. So there's barracks. Um, I come from a family of three brothers, so I always had a, my own room. But when I went to depot, there were 31 other women in my room. So it's like barrack style, long hallways with, you know, little cots on either side. And um, so it was a giant eye opener for me. But yes, it's paramilitary <laughs> style. And every RCMP was. officer <laughs> does that. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, you know, I, I went to a, re um, a residential academy for my in the first police department that I that I went to in Princeton, New Jersey, and that was oh, that was about three months of them having you in a barracks. And I, but I got to tell you, I think I learned more about the world in that barracks than I did in the classroom. Agreed. I mean, <laughs> and I met some of my lifelong friends from there as well. But it was uh, it was an incredible six months. I don't think any of us will ever forget that time in our lives and our the start of our careers. Yeah, it's a that's, that's a magical time. Although we didn't think about it when we were when we were running all those all those laps, did we? No, pretty sure I wouldn't have referred to it as magical. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you began your career um, after graduating the academy, the uh, depot. Um, where were you assigned? So I was assigned to, I knew I was going to British Columbia. They kind of lead you to believe, at least back then they did, that you have a little bit of say or a little bit of control in where you're going to go. Um, they asked me to list my top three provinces. So I listed Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia. I got British Columbia, so that's my third. And then I was told that I was going to a community called Kitimat, and it's in northern British Columbia. And it's about population, at, la at that time, about 10,000 people. So it was even smaller than the place that I grew up in. So I knew it was going to be a bit of a, um, a new experience for me, for sure. Okay, so I'm... Um... I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying. So you you don't really have a whole lot of say. You're it's a it's a federal agency, so they'll put you basically where they want to put you. And so, in trying to understand that, when you were assigned to a place far away from home, a ten thousand municipal or ten thousand uh, population municipal area. Um, do they give you housing for that too, or do you, or are you on your own? You find your own place to live, and and you know you start your life over again. 
So the RCMP is really unique in that you're right. Um, when you sign on the dotted line, you're signing to say you will go where operational needs arise. And so you might go to a place called, uh, for example, Surrey, which is, I don't know, half a million people live there. So that's definitely urban policing. So you might go there, but you might go up to one of the territories and be like in a fly-in post. Like you just never really know what you're going to get. So you sign on the dotted line and, and I got sent there. But you, um, there's so much variety and so many different opportunities and different different styles of policing. So in the community that I got sent to, there was no force housing is what they call it. So some people in those more remote communities get housing provided to them, maybe at a reduced cost or that sort of thing. Uh, but in the place that I was sent to, I just rented a, a little apartment. So it just varies depending on what location you're assigned. Okay, interesting. So did you spend your entire career there? I did not. So uh, Kitimat, because of the size of it, um, they call certain posts LDPs, so a limited duration post. And so what that means is that there's a time frame attached to it, meaning that they want you to move on. Sometimes there's a two year, three, sometimes at that time, mine was a five year posting. So I knew going in that five years was going to be how long I was going to be there. Okay, so you spent five years there, and and what were your duties um, in in that in that posting? Well, that's one of the interesting things about some of the postings that you you can get is that you have the opportunity to dive really into various investigations that maybe in a more populated place there have specialized units. So in Kitimat, I did general duty policing. So you're doing everything from traffic to drunken impaired, different things like that, assaults, um, B&Es, just kind of anything. But you also had some time because it wasn't always so busy so that you could really uh, learn about investigational techniques. And that's how I ended up developing a little bit of a niche in sex crimes investigations. Interesting. So how many other officers were assigned to Kitimat? Uh, you know, it, normally in, in the United States, if I'm, a, if I'm in a small town, say Princeton, where I began my career, there were 30 police officers on that police department. Because you were in, you're, you're in a jurisdiction that isn't policed by itself, that you, you were there with the RCMP, were there how many other RCMP uh, officers were assigned to that? 17 at my time. Gotcha. 17. So, okay. Yeah. And and you guys shared those responsibilities. Yeah, we did. There weren't really, uh, there's very little in terms of specialized sections. So we all got exposure to, to, if there was a murder, you were part of that investigation. Whereas in other detachments, if there was a murder, it would get assigned to a specialized unit, a homicide team or something like that. So it, uh, it was definitely a great place to learn about policing and really expose myself to all the different um, facets of this, this new career that I'd embarked upon. Okay, so, okay, you did five years there. Where next? Uh, well, it's a little bit of a, there's a blip there. Um, so I did do five years minus the 10 months of my um, situation that happened that we can get into in a few minutes. But after Kitimat, I went to the Okanagan, which is um, beautiful. So after you do some time in this LDP kind of style policing world, you pretty much get your choice of where you want to go. So I went to uh, a very, very beautiful part of the country um, called Vernon, which is in the Okanagan in sort of the interior of BC. So I spent about five years in that area. And then I went down to the lower mainland, which is outside of Vancouver. The lower mainland. <laughs> yep. I'm using okay. all the BC lingo. Yeah, that's great. I love it. All right. So um, during your, I mean, at the formative 
part of your career. You're, you, you know, you're assigned for five years to Kitimat. And then you were involved in, uh, in, a, in an incident that changed your life. Um, if you would, let's, let's start talking about that. Sure. So in the first couple of years, I think largely at the outset, because you're a female officer, often sex crimes investigations kind of land on your desk because you're interviewing female victims typically. So I think that's a natural thing and, and many female members will say the same thing. So I developed a bit of a niche and got some extra training in sex crimes investigations. And I really felt passionate about that line of work. And I was investigating a sex crime on a 13 year old girl. And in September of 1998, there was a disclosure by her. Um, and then in the next, so we did a warrant in September and then it's a small town. So word travels fast. People knew that she had come and spoken to me and I ended up with several other victims coming forward and providing different disclosures as well. So I ended up with a bunch more evidence. So in November of 1998, two months after the initial disclosure, myself and two other RCMP officers went to execute a search warrant at the suspected um, offenders residence. And that was on November 27th of 1998. A, a day which will, uh, will be forever ingrained in your memory. That anniversary is, uh, is a weird one. Um, in the early years, it was really tough. Now I, uh, it's been so long and I do positive things to, to really um, commemorate that phase in, in my life and to really reflect on how far I've come since those dark early days. But yeah, it was a, it was a brisk, you know, sunny, cool afternoon. And we were going to execute this warrant and the house was a townhouse unit. So it, I was underneath a carport kind of to the right of the door and my corporal, which is a rank that we have here. I'm not sure many of uh, the U.S. agencies have that. Um, he was my supervisor. He was on the left-hand side, and our other uh, member was around the back of the unit. And I heard a loud pop, and it was like a balloon popped right beside my ear. And it was really loud, and the reverberations were kind of echoing in my head, and I couldn't hear because of the buzzing sound. And I looked at this white door, and I see this black hole in it. And then I smell the familiar smell of gunpowder and I taste that chalky residue on my tongue and I look down and I see this grayish, blackish, whitish smoke coming from my right shin. And I say to my, my corporal, I say, I've been shot. And he said, what? And I said, I've been shot. And he looks at me and he says, well, lie down. So I wow. do, <laughs> yeah, it was weird how all my senses kicked in and it takes me way longer to explain that split second than it did, you know, when it actually happened in reality. But it was so crazy how all my senses kicked in before my brain actually recognized what actually happened. Wow. So yeah, it was incredible. I, I laid down on my left side because it was my my right shin and he quickly looked at my injury. And in Canada, we have these 10 codes. And the worst one you can hear as an officer is 1033 because it means officer down. And in this case, it was officer, obviously me. So he went on the air and said, we have a 1033. And he quickly grabbed me behind my neck and behind or from the back of my gun belt and dragged me around uh, a vehicle for to get me out of the line or to get me to safety. So. Right. Right. So he so the, the suspect fired one round. Turns out he fired two. I only heard one. Um, he was inside and it was a sawed off 303 rifle and um, two quick shots. One went out the back and one went out the, the, air, the angle that I was at. 
Um, so we didn't actually even know if he was home at this point. So um, it was it was quite a chaotic scene after I was removed from it. But he was inside. And at the time, there was some talk of potentially other people as well. So we really weren't sure what we were facing. It, and you were shot with a 303 rifle? I was. That's a hell of a yeah. devastating round. Yeah, it certainly was. I um, I remember the two paramedics come rushing in to to collect me and get me out of there as quickly as possible. And one of them grabbed me underneath my knees and the other one grabbed me underneath my armpits and they ran with me to the waiting ambulance. And I remember my leg dangling at this very, it was a very strange sensation. Uh, so by the time I got down to the little hospital that's in Kitimat and there was all this um, chaos ensuing and people are just in it was panic really because things like this don't happen in small communities do they (laughs) but um they're all making arrangements for me to fly to vancouver to get the care that i needed so i knew it was a life-saving move and as they were cutting off my clothes and and making arrangements for this air ambulance to take me i remember one of my colleagues coming in and saying Lori, Lori, do you have any dying declarations? And I thought, I don't even know what that is. Like, I don't remember from depot training. What what is that? What's a dying declaration? But the only word that stuck out to me was dying. And so since since I didn't know I was shot in my leg, I remember patting down my torso and my guts and and thinking, oh, I was shot somewhere else, too. And I just haven't figured that out yet. So it, it really amped up my fear because I knew it was bad and I was losing blood at an alarming rate, but I had no idea what really my status was. And I was concerned that people weren't wanting to tell me that it was more dire than, than what I even knew. Right, right. Um, were, were you wearing a, a ballistic vest at the time? I was, yep. That's good to hear. Too bad, too bad yeah. it didn't cover your leg. But uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so, so you're, you're hit. Um, you are, you're in a small town. They realize that the care that you need is something that you're not going to get there. So they, they, uh, uh, air medevac you to, uh, to a, a larger hospital that had a trauma unit. Exactly. And so I was conscious for about four hours because now, of course, I'm so scared that I'm dying. And wow. so the only message that I'm telling myself is blink because blink was physical proof that I was alive. And it was such a strange phase because I was getting weaker and weaker very quickly, but I wanted to prove to myself that I I was alive. And so I just kept focusing on the blinking and I finally lost consciousness after about four hours. And when I came to, I was in Vancouver and I was told that I had undergone a very, uh, you know, significant surgery. And for eight hours, they had tried to restore circulation to my right foot by taking chunks of a large vein from my left leg to try to get that circulation back going and they were unable to. So the final uh, result was that I had to have my leg amputated about five inches below my right knee in order to save my life. Wow. So you you were conscious for four hours um, living with that that horrendous fear um, and then, uh, was, did, did you lose consciousness from the loss of blood? 
It's tough to say. It was probably a combination of both things, uh, like shock, loss of blood. And I don't know exactly the medications, of course, that they gave me. But I know that when you're going on an air ambulance, they have to be mindful of the altitude and things. I, I really don't know the medical side of it. But um, yeah, it was it was a long haul because so many logistics have to get put in place to fly me in from a remote northern community to a big center like that. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's... Um... So you you when when you woke up from um, from being you know you were you were sedated no doubt um, how did they tell you that they had removed your leg? It was such a foggy time because of course I was highly medicated and the pain and and all that and I just remember the word amputation kind of resonating in my head and I I thought how is it in 1998 that amputation is the only option like i thought we were so far i don't know it just seems like such a foreign phrase i just couldn't even wrap my head around it and in and in reality i didn't actually look at what was left of my leg for many days into my stay in hospital i just couldn't mm. bring myself to because that i just knew that i wasn't going to be able to handle the the visual reality of what my life was going to look like now so i just wanted to stay in denial as long as possible Wow. All right. We, we've got to take a quick break and then we'll be right back and we'll pick up right from there. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. 
Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.news was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee. Patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, very, very good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to One Nation coffee.com order your coffee and uh you'll get great coffee and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue so uh go to one nation coffee.com So I want to tell you about a company, OfficerPrivacy.com, and what is it that they do? Well, they do some amazing work. They they um, they showed me something that I had no idea about. <laughs> that is how much information there is available on the internet about me and about you. And I mean, there's, we're talking personal stuff like where I live. That makes me very uncomfortable, especially in this new age of doxing and all this other insanity that uh, that 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 law enforcement officers are facing. So what they do is they actually go onto the internet. They're, they have a trained team. Everybody is uh, current or former law enforcement. And they actually scrub information from the internet um, that helps keep you safer. And uh, I, they're do, they do great work. Um, I, uh, Pete James, who owns uh, Officer Privacy, has become a good friend. Um, he is out there literally every single day um, speaking the gospel about about officer privacy and how important it is. It's not expensive. Um, they do they do really good work. So go to officerprivacy.com, see who they are, and um, and reach out to them. Feel free to tell them Randy sent you. Um, I use them, and uh, you'll want to use them too. Officerprivacy.com. Now, I also want to talk to you about the Wounded Blue. Um, the Wounded Blue is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers, a nationwide charity that has helped more than 14,000 injured and disabled officers, whether those injuries are physical, emotional, and psychological. And we know that, uh, that in this day and age, with all of the dangers facing law enforcement, that we're seeing a tremendous amount of emotional, psychological injury as well. 
So um, what do we do? We uh, provide peer support for injured and disabled officers. My entire team is made up of cops who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over. Many have faced PTS and come out on the other side of that abyss. So they know what they're doing. They know what they're talking about. And it's very, when you get hurt in the line of duty, it's, um, it's, it's a very lonely feeling. And sometimes police agencies and cities um, literally um, discard the officers once they become uh, injured or disabled. And so helping you walk through that journey is what we do. We also help people get into treatment for addiction, for uh, uh, post-traumatic stress. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that we do. So go to off um, thewoundedblue.org, thewoundedblue.org, see who we are, see what we do. And if you're, if you're a law enforcement officer and you're struggling, reach out to us. That's what we're here for. And if you can do it, please hit that donate button. We are a charity. Uh, I take no salary. Everything goes back into the, into the, uh, into the organization. And uh, we're doing great work. So if you can, uh, hit that donate button. Give what you can, even if it's 10, 20 bucks a month. Okay? So that's uh, thewoundedblue.org. Let's bring Lori back in. Lori, so... You, you're, you're still in the hospital, and you haven't even looked at your leg. Um, tell me about that journey. Well, the initial part of the journey was a media circus. Uh, I mean, a young female RCMP officer in a northern British Columbian town gets shot by an alleged pedophile. Okay, so wait, there's hold a lot on a second. Let me let me ask you something. From I forgot to ask you, what happened with 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 the suspect? Did was there? Did you guys shoot him? What happened with him? There was about a ten hour standoff, and he shot himself. Killed himself. Yes. Well, that's good. He solved the problem for you. Yeah, I mean, even going through the inquest, which is part of the standard procedure here was was very very difficult and traumatic and uh for all of us involved i mean it was certainly not just me i mean i happened to be the one who was most significantly injured but everybody who was involved that day from the dispatchers to my co-workers that were actually at the scene and then the ones who came in after there's just so many people involved that often we don't recognize that when we're talking about traumatic situations like my own right. and so going through that inquest was challenging enough. And so in, in, for selfish reasons, I'm glad that I didn't have to sit through a court case because I'm sure there never would have been any justice um, that would have been satisfactory to me. Uh, but obviously taking your own life is not the, the answer ever, but um, it was, a, it was a, a tough realization to kind of reconcile those two things. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so, um... You, so you add that onto your devastating injury, and uh, let's pick it up from there. So yeah, it was a media circus. I was just inundated with cards and letters and visitors and gifts. And, and while I was very appreciative, I also was desperate for some time alone, but I also was um, in so much pain that I just couldn't make sense of what was happening around me. So I felt like when I finally did have that the, when the media stuff sort of died off and it was coming up to Christmas time and then I was left to my own devices and then the reality hits and you think, what the hell 
am I going to do? This is my right leg. Like, I, am I going to be able to walk? Can I drive? What's my independence level? Like, I was a fitness person and a, an athlete. Like, what, where, where does life go from here? I just had so many questions and no answers at all. So it was a very stressful time just sitting there and ruminating and stewing about all the what ifs and the possibilities or the, or the lack thereof. And I really found myself in a dark, dark place mm-hmm. in those next couple months. Um, and then I actually came to a place where I was bitter that I survived. Everyone was saying, you know, you're so lucky you're, you know, you're still here, you made it. And yet in my mind, I thought there's no, there's no hope here. I was full of despair and, and I was actually angry that I had lived. So it was wow. such a difficult that, time. Yeah. That, that is, that is an incredible statement. That is an incredible statement that, that, um, well, so the, so you had to, you had to, make some sense out of your survival. Yeah, I mean, I thought, how dare these people who are walking around and able-bodied, like how dare they come up and and make me feel like I should be grateful, like grateful for what was really my bad attitude at the time. Um, So thankfully that phase passed. It wasn't a short phase. And I did find myself, because I was so physically dependent on other people in those early months, I, I am so grateful now that I was physically dependent because I don't know what I would have done had I had better, um, had, had I had any skills to, to act on those feelings and those emotions because they were dark and they were deep and they lasted a long time. So I don't know what I would have done had my circumstances been different. Cause I would find myself like, I'll be straight up. I would find myself lying there in bed thinking like, how can I kill myself? Can I overdose? Can I just slip away? I don't want to cause my, parents and my family any more pain, but I just can't see any future here. And so I wanted to slip away without causing any more grief and and devastation to their lives and any more turmoil, but I just wanted to escape. And so I really recognize what that feeling's like when people feel at their lowest and at their darkest, because we don't want to hurt other people. We just, we want to escape. Right, right. So um, let me ask you this. How did your your agency treat you once you were injured? That's a loaded question in many ways because we have to recognize too that now it's been 25 years and things have changed. At the outset, there was a significant lack of communication as far as things that were very stressful to me, like where am I going to get my, like who's going to pay for my, my rehab? my I'm going to need an apartment in this new big city because that's where the resources are so who pays for that when I'm paying for an apartment in Kitimat like I don't have the funds to be able to do that who's going to pay for my prosthetic legs um who's gonna like what's my job security like all those kinds of things that are big questions but now people have a better understanding of those because the internet and things but in 1998 i didn't have easy access to that kind of information and so there was a significant lack of communication dissemination and that part was very very frustrating Mm. so at the beginning i felt very um i felt a little bit misled people would say don't worry about it don't worry about it but you have nothing but time to worry about things and that's when i needed answers i needed some reassurance and so it was a very scary time in my life because i thought okay i'm 29 what if i can't go back to policing like what's my employability going to be like outside this organization if i'm no longer able to carry on with my career so there were just many many questions that i feel like could have been answered in a quick and succinct way back then that would have put my mind at ease and my family's mind at ease, but we just didn't get that at the start. So at the start, it was not great. Um, And then at different phases throughout my career, it it also was not great. 
uh, years. So I'll backtrack and just say I did do 10 months of rehabilitation. And the RCMP had said, in order to go back to general duties, which is the kind of policing that I do, patrol policing, you need to do the pair, which in the RCMP is the physical standard that you have to pass in a certain time frame in order to be uh, deemed suitable to go to work. And so that had been dangled in front of me since day one. You have to do the pair, Laura, you have to do your pair, the pair. And so that was what I was hyper-focused on day in, day out. I was grinding and grinding and grinding. And then when I finally did do the pair successfully, and I submitted the video to our health services team that make the ultimate decision about the, when my suitability, all of a sudden I'm hit with, oh, but also you have to go see a psychologist. Oh, and you also have to go do police driving tests. And you also have to do our FATS training, which is our computer simulized um, use of force training. And you had to go to the shooting range and do the police shooting qualifications. And I was highly pissed off because I felt like they were trying to make me fail. Mm -hmm. I thought that for you know, all those months, they had said the pair. That was the only thing standing between me regaining my job. And so that's what I had focused on. And so I felt like it was um, an intentional attempt to make me fail. So I ended up in a very bitter place by the time I actually did successfully return to work because I felt like I, all, eyes on were, all eyes were on me. And I do recognize that liability is a factor, but I also felt like it could have been uh, told to me in a more supportive way and the expectations could have been more clearly communicated so that I didn't get hit with that feeling of like, oh shit, now they're making me jump through all these other hoops. Like, you know, what if I fail one of these things? What if I don't get a psychologist that's going to give me the stamp of approval? Like it just was a very discouraging time to think that, um, I, I, I just felt misled bottom line. Yeah. Right. Right. No, I, I understand that. So, um, after you, you, um, you worked your butt off to be able to go back. I mean, so now you, you, you have your leg missing from the knee down or yeah, just below the knee. How was your rehab? I mean, you, you had to, you had to really concentrate on, and thank God you were, you were an athlete as well. Um, how was your rehab? I was very fortunate. My, my biggest sport growing up was figure skating and that body awareness helped me immensely in my, in my rehab. And my ability to know where my body is in space became of just like it's invaluable. So I say that because when you get a prosthetic foot, she would say at the beginning, okay, close your eyes and like try to touch your toes. And I would be touched, you know, I'd be six, eight inches away from it. Like I just had no ability to know where my foot was in space now that my, my actual foot was gone. And it was very scary because if you're going to learn how to drive with it, you, you need to know where your equipment is in space in order to function well in this world and to be able to trust your equipment. So it took a long time, but for me, because I had been plucked out of Kitimat and in this big city, and I'm, I'm not a city person, um, it was very overwhelming, but I had no friends there and I had nothing else to do other than rehab. So every day I was there at, you know, 830 in the morning and I would do often the morning at physio and then I'd go to the gym in the afternoon because for me, the way that the messaging in my own head was, is that if I wasn't there grinding every single day, then clearly I didn't want this job back as much as I, as much as I was letting other people believe. And so, so I felt like the onus was on me to, to grind every single day and be relentless because that would be proof that I earned it and deserved to get my job back. 
So you had no basically peer support at this time? No, I didn't. I mean, the odd friend or, or <laughs> colleague or something like that. But I, I was living in a city where I didn't know anybody in the first while. My mom came out to live with me to look after me. And then as I started regaining some independence, she moved on and I just carried on myself. But um, I was very much alone. And that was the first time in my life where I really learned how to be alone because it was forced on me. Wow. Okay. Um, would that, if, if things had changed, if, if, you, if you had had a strong support system from within the agency as, as in peer support, you think it would have made a difference? I definitely think it would have made a difference. And I think that in those early days, my physiotherapist and a social worker at the rehab facility that I was at, they orchestrated a very small support group between me and two other um, people. They were both inpatients. I was an outpatient. And at the beginning, I thought, there's no value in this. We are all facing much different paths of recovery because of our individual circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it didn't really make any sense. Why would they bring this group of three women together to have this support group? And I couldn't believe after the very first session how valuable it actually turned out to be because it's not the individual circumstances that matter. It doesn't matter like the examples that you gave at the beginning. It doesn't matter if you were shot, run over, stabbed. Those circumstances really aren't what what brings people together it's the emotion it's the experience it's the journey it's the grief the anger the loss the betrayal of your body mm. the betrayal of maybe your organization all those things those things are what are what's relatable okay so you you wrote you wrote a book um and tell me about that what why did you write the book and at what point in your in your journey, did you make that conscious decision to say, "I need to put this down in uh, in in writing"? I remember being in the ICU back in those early days and thinking to myself, "You know, someday I should write a book." And um, it's an odd thing to say because I'm not really much of a writer. And frankly, since my my injury, I'm not that much of a reader. I don't have the attention span. It's part of my PTS, and that's the concentration piece and the fo the ability to focus for long periods of time. So it is kind of ironic looking back, thinking that I thought that at the time because I had been a voracious reader up until that time. But things changed. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so I always thought someday maybe I'll, I'll write a book about my experiences. And every time I sat down to write, what I realized is I was writing out in anger. And I was writing out in, um, it was a release of emotion based on things that were happening in my life, largely work-related. And so when I would go back and think, okay, like, can we make some sense of this and put it in context for a book? I just never saw anything resulting from that. I felt like it was too much of a vent. Um, a venting opportunity as opposed to anything really that productive. But I did find that I retired officially January 2020. COVID hit fairly shortly thereafter when we were very much in the lockdown and I had two kids. I've been a single mom for a very long time and I had two kids in late, later high school-ish years. And so we were all at home and I thought, you know, now that I'm retired, what better opportunity to go back and reframe some of those negative experiences that I had and that I'd written about and look at them through a different lens, but then also be productive. And what am I gonna do in retirement? Who am I gonna be now? And what kind of example and role model can I be for my kids when I'm retired at 50? And what can I show them about life after after one career? Like, is there possibility out there? And so I think it, I came at it from a lot of different angles and that's when it really came together. I think I needed that time and that distance from the actual career and the conflict that I experienced through those 25 years of, um, 
uh, you know, since my injury, I really felt like having that time and that distance and that separation from the organization and from some of the people really helped me put my experiences into context. Interesting. So during the, re the rest of your career, you were, you were back on the street as a copper. Well, I was for a while. And then I became what we call here in Canada, duty to accommodate. So I knew that the, the shift work and the carrying around of all our equipment, many of people don't recognize, I'm sure you've talked about it with others, but uh, the weight of the gun belt and the vest and all the equipment that we have to wear and the shift work, it's in and of itself. I mean, it's all bad on your body and your health. And so after a while, I was really struggling and I couldn't understand why I couldn't keep up with the pace of the shift work and the, and the schedule that I was dealing with. But what I realized fairly quickly was that as an amputee at my level, they say it's about a 35% energy expenditure difference in how you just function day to day. And so no wonder I'm tired. I mean, I've got way less energy because it takes more energy for me to do what other people are doing. So when I could finally accept that, because as a shift worker, I was finding that I would go to work I would come home and I would sleep on my days on and on my days off, I would try to focus mostly on fitness because that's what I needed for my job. But once I got married and, and um, had kids, I realized that work didn't deserve the best of me. My family did and something needed to give and that was full-time operational policing. And so I went to permanent part-time administrative stuff and it was a very, very tough pill to swallow. I felt like I was relinquishing. I felt like I was giving up. I felt like I was less than, that I wasn't going to be as valued as, a, as an employee. And I wasn't many times, honestly. But it was easier to accept because my family did deserve the best part of me. And I wanted to give that to them. They did deserved it. That's interesting that, that you had that opportunity. Um, so basically, it's, um, it's a, uh, it was a part-time position. Is that correct? Yeah, and it was a fight, don't get me wrong, it was not easy. Um, when I first became what we call duty to accommodate, uh, it's a human rights thing, but you're, there's an expectation from the employer's side and there's an expectation from the employee's side to be, to be cooperative and to find roles for you within reason. And so I would come up with different ideas on where I could still be utilized and where my skill set could still be appreciated. And it wasn't always met with open arms and so I had to fight a lot. And I really realized quickly that my networking and who I knew was really going to come in to play in, in my future going forward. Because I went back to full unrestricted duties in October of 1999. And I became duty to accommodate in 2004 after I had my first child. So I spent a significant part of my career fighting for roles that were meaningful and offered me rewarding opportunities. And I didn't always get them, but I did sometimes. And so I really uh, respect the supervisors that were willing to step up and accept what I can bring to the table as opposed to focusing on what I can't bring to the table. Understood. Interesting. Um, so w did your, your, you battled with post-traumatic stress for a significant amount of time. Um, can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, I think I struggle with it still. Absolutely, I do. I think in those dark, dark days, you think that it's like any you know physical injury up until that point I had experienced that you do your due diligence and you recover and do your rehab and you commit to that and you do the best that you can to get back to as close to normal as possible. So in those early months, years, I would go down all these rabbit holes when 
I shouldn't say rabbit holes. I mean, I would have sleep issues. And so I deal with what can I do to better to, to better rest. Um, I would have depression issues. And then so I would deal with that with the psychologists and things. But it wasn't until 2003 that suggested to me that, you know, have you ever considered post-traumatic stress? And I had never even heard of it in 2003. So I looked into it and I would do one of those online quizzes as they were in 2003. And I would answer all the questions, you know, are you hypervigilant? Are you jumpy? Are you uh, having tough time sleeping? Uh, do you have nightmares? Um, all these different things. And my answer to every single thing was yes. And it was very overwhelming, but it also was kind of a relief. Like I remember sitting there at the computer crying, recognizing that what they were describing in these quizzes was in fact exactly my life. But then also having this fear of what does that mean long term? And also this weird sense of relief too. Like if there's an answer, if there's a diagnosis, an official medical diagnosis, well, then there's got to be a fix for it, right? <laughs> and, and we're still trying to figure out that fix. I'm still trying to figure it out too. But I think <laughs> like over time, when you've been dealing with it for so long, part of it becomes your personality. It's hard to separate sometimes what are the quirks and some of the routines and the rituals that you develop and you devise in order to function in the world in the best way possible in this new normal that you're facing. And I still do that. I mean, my kids have many jokes with me about like the things that I do and the things that I say and, and the routines that I have, but it's just part of how I function today and will forever function. So I think it ebbs and it flows anymore, but I'm better able to be aware of the changes in myself and my surroundings. And I function better when I know that, hey, I don't like big crowds. Um, you go for any, to go to any public place, like most police officers, we're always fighting for a seat that faces the door because we're <laughs> always on high alert. Like um, the safety rituals that you, I engage before I leave my house in terms of the garage doors being shut and the doors being locked and things like that. There's just all kinds of things that are just part of my day-to-day -day functioning now that definitely originated with the PTSD. So one of the things that <clears throat> that we have found, you know, in my work with with the, the Wounded Blue is that by by helping others, we help ourselves. Is that it was you think that's a big motivator for you for why you do the speaking engagements? It's a huge motivator. The first time I was asked to speak, it was in 19, uh, it was just over a year after I'd returned to work. And I was asked to speak at this women's wellness conference. And I had no idea what they would want to hear from me. Like I felt like my situation was so unrelatable that I really had a tough time coming up with what I was going to say to this group. And what I realized quickly was exactly what I had said, that my circumstances, while they couldn't relate, there was no one in that audience who'd been shot. None of them were even police officers for that matter. But we've all experienced trauma and grief and loss. And so that's what you're bringing into an environment like that. And that's where the emotions equalize us. And so that feeling of giving back and that rewarding feeling of knowing that I am blessed with an ability to be able to stand in front of groups of people and speak openly, which is something that many people just don't feel comfortable doing. I, I'm okay with that. And so if people are going to be able to learn and if sharing my experiences helps normalize things for other people, then I feel it's my obligation and my duty because we signed up to be police officers for civil service. And I just feel like if there's any benefit for me doing what I do and sharing my story, because I, I'm a firm believer that story sharing is the most powerful form of human connection. And so I'm honored when I get invited to, to share mine, because if there's any takeaways that people can learn from, I'm, I'm absolutely flattered. 
So the book is 1033, An Officer Down Steps Back Up, and that's available on Amazon, correct? It is. In, yes, it is. Okay. And, and so um, I just want to mention to the audience that um, the National Law Enforcement Survival Summit, which is going to be held in Las Vegas, September 26th through the 29th, it's our fourth annual, uh, you're going to be a featured speaker there. So there will be an opportunity for anybody that's watching this and wants to see you speak, um, they, can, they can come to the Survival Summit. I, I'm absolutely thrilled to be on the roster this year. Uh, the reason that you and I uh, became connected was through Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, who, when I saw him speak years ago, it was absolutely pivotal in my healing journey. And I reached out to him uh, back then, long before a book was even going to be a possibility. And then I reached out to him again when I was doing my book, just to tell him and remind him how pivotal that day of hearing him speak was for me in my life. And I was thrilled that he would... Um, write something for my book. And so that's, I'm really grateful when I found your organization, because while I'm up here in Canada, uh, knowing that there are groups of people out there like the Wounded Blue, which is something that I would have been absolutely begging for in many times in my career, it's uh, such a comforting feeling knowing that there are resources in place and people who just get it and want better and, and are looking for ways to improve the experiences of all of us law enforcement personnel out here. So Absolutely. I really what you Yeah. How can people contact you if they want to book you for a speaking engagement? LinkedIn's probably the easiest. Um, I'm yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best. Facebook, Instagram, um, any Google search is uh, Lori RCMP. You'll you'll find some other information, but I'm out there and and uh, thank you. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. We've come to the end of our of our hour here. It seems like it was just about five minutes, but um, thank you so much, Lori, for taking the time to join me on, uh, I, I think you said it's Boxing Day in Canada? It is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so happy Boxing Day, and you and I will talk again soon. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me on the show, Randy. My pleasure. So um, hope you enjoyed the show today. Um, once again, you know, uh, the Wounded Blue is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers. I ask you to go to the website, check it out. If you are a police officer and you're struggling, either physical or emotional issues, please reach out to us. That's why we're here. Um, we, are, we are true believers in our motto, never forgotten, never alone. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. We'll see you again next week.